Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. And tonight, we have a very special guest with us, MJ Bassett, writer, director, producer. MJ, how are you doing? I'm, I'm pretty good. I sound impressive when you say all those credits in a row. I like that. Ah, I like it, too. It sounds really impressive. And you do have a lot of impressive work. Now, I got to tell you this. Uh, you know, I like to research all of my guests beyond what I've seen their work on the screen and so on. And I've come across okay. a lot of pictures of you directing. And it looks like you are the type of director who likes to really, for lack of a better term, get into the dirt and into the grime and into the, the, the oh, thick yes. of things with your actors. Is that an accurate I do. portrayal? I do. It's incredibly accurate. I, I like the process of filming more than anything else. I just like to be on the floor or in the location. I hate studio work. I like to be somewhere. I like to be somewhere kind of challenging and dirty and intense. And I like the I like working with actors. I like I like the crew. So yeah, you'll always find hopefully find pictures of me pointing at things in distant locations. Absolutely, we're going to go to that mountain now. And uh, like when you have a specific vision in mind for how a sequence or a scene should play out, uh, how do you work with your actors in to make sure that they achieve? your vision the way you see it oh wow we dove straight in um well the thing is there's no one way of doing it i don't think i mean i have my style i'm only i, I have learned over the years just to be me on the set right i can't i can't I, you know there's time when you start off you're like how I sh how should i be as a director what should i do how should i pr present myself and obviously you know i, I transition as well so i've come out i'm a different person anyway from when i started but I realized it's just be me. I mean, I'm by nature pretty enthusiastic about what I do on the set. I find I like to try and surround myself with actors who feel the same way about their work. I mean, we're all lucky to be there, right? The job yeah. we do is crazy fun. It's high, you know, there's long hours. Sometimes it's hard work, but it's not a real job by any stretch of the imagination. I've done real work. <laughs> real work is really challenging. Um, so this, and, and then it's the, the, to get them to do what you want really I, it doesn't quite work like that with me it's like what is the best collaborative approach to get to a really cool thing that we want to do now my job as a director is to have a plan when i'm going in and then to be able to deviate from that plan in a successful way by incorporating other people's better ideas than mine right and if nobody else has a better idea i mean that's it my idea wins I, i'm i'm the arbiter of, of everything on the set it has to be that way and um, because if you don't have somebody who kind of controls or if there's no captain of the ship then there's yeah. no journey you don't know how you're going so it's, it's keeping that in control but it depends who the actor is every actor needs to be dealt with in a slightly different way some actors love to be directed some actors love to talk all the time some actors don't want you to tell them anything some you know like and everyone is different and as much as anything the job of the director when you get a little bit more experience is just okay how can you quietly manipulate people to get what you want what they want they think they're getting what they want the same as with all the crew members, by the way. The actors are not sort of the super elite bit of the crew. There are, you know, camera operators want to have their style. DPs have their thing they want to do. So you're what you're trying to find is the best, is to cherry pick all the best stuff from clever people all around you to go into the thing that you're trying to make. And this is the difference between doing TV where you're serving somebody else's vision if you come on as just a kind of jobbing director or your own movie where you, if I'm writing, producing, and directing, it's all the things that I want to do, and so yeah. therefore I have a very specific idea. Okay. And then sometimes it's like, I'm kind of stuck. Everybody help me out. 
Exactly. I like the fact that you just go in there and try to pull out the best of everyone's abilities, uh, the best that where their biggest talents lie, and just yeah. cherry pick and harvest that. I think that's that's because I get credit for all of that, right? Yeah, yeah. Get, You're the director. Like, You're the captain. I of still the boat. come up at the end. Again. <laughs> I get the credit and the blame. By the way, that's the other thing as well. Is you you got to be prepared for the for the sticks yeah. as well, which I've had as yeah. well as all the good things, you know, so you go and eventually you get a thick enough skin and you realize that you can't please everyone, everybody. And the thing is, is you've got to try and please yourself. If you're making a genre stuff, genre materials, I mean, I love it. I'm a genre fan, right? So it's like, I want to be, I want to be pleased by what I do. Exactly. Uh, that's what matters at the end of the day. Now, um, yeah. you got your start as a wildlife photographer. Uh, did you always know that filmmaking is where you wanted to end up or was it something you discovered on your journey as a photographer? Well, it's slightly more complex than that. So I start, I wanted to be a vet. That's what I really wanted to be. I wanted to be a wildlife vet. That was my great science and nature is my great, great passions. Um, and I was a veterinary assistant. I ran wildlife hospitals. I've done all that stuff. Um, and I love movies, but in the UK, when I grew up in like the eighties in the UK, and there was no path to being a filmmaker. So it was never really one of the things you had a conversation about. But my brother, who's older than me, and his friends had access to a Super 8 camera. And I used to follow them around as they made these Super 8 movies. And I was like, this is really a cool thing to do and to see. And they used to make, oh, they were obsessed with Star Wars because they're a little bit older than I was. And I knew about Star Wars and I was a big fan. But the process of actually a film being made was not... It never occurred to me as a little kid. Somebody actually goes out and does this stuff. They think about it, they write it, they design it, they shoot it, all that stuff. Never occurred to me. So, and I remember really clearly my brother and his friends would get a. The, the, is it, remember, Jerry Anderson's space show. And they had um, Eagle Transporters, which are the spaceship model. And they got one of these spaceship models. And, they, and this is in the UK where it's completely illegal to have gunpowder. They emptied out old fireworks and filled it full of gunpowder from the fireworks and then blew it up um, in somebody's backyard. Oh, God. And I was there to watch the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I remember I was maybe seven or eight, maybe a little older, eight or nine years old. Anyway, but anyway, I remember watching this thing. To this day, I can see this thing going, that's, which is the reason why I blow up a lot of shit now, I think. I'm just chasing the excitement of blowing crap up all the time. Um, so that was just to get back to the, the, the question you, you asked. So I love movies. I love genre movies. I grew up with American kind of, it was a boom of VH, Betamax and VHS home video. I remember that. I was watching days. all, that's right. I remember that all those things came in, the beginning of stores where you could rent movies. I was obsessed with Alien, completely obsessed with Alien, um, but never thought for a second I'd be a filmmaker. So I wanted to be a vet um, and I studied very badly, but I was very good at the natural history stuff. And then I met a wildlife photographer when I was about 15 years old. He said, I want an assistant. When can you leave school? And I said, well, I can leave school at 16 because I know I'm never going to, I'm never going to succeed in my exams. So he took me in and taught me wildlife filmmaking and stills photography. And I ended up doing some, you know, documentary work for BBC Bristol. And then I got a job actually on camera in the UK hosting it was initially children's television program talking about animals. And then I did other stuff and I traveled a little bit. And then while I was doing that, I bought a video camera. One of the big old VHS, you know, the ones oh, you yeah, wear I had you one. shoot yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. I had a Panasonic one. And um, 
I feel so you're making films about animals. I said, no, I want to blow shit up. <laughs> right. And that's where I kind of the paths went. I went, okay, I want to try and make movies. And so I made, you know, crappy short films on VHS and back where there's no editing facility. So I had to get a borrow a, a two VHS players and like pause, record, pause, record to do my editing. And like every time you did a cut, the generation would go down. So yeah. ultimately your film would just be a massive snow and damaged tape and sound going right. God, you're but, bringing you back know, some I, memories now. I, I think a whole generation of us started like that. And then, you know, these days an iPhone is an entire movie studio in mm -hmm. your hand. The kids don't appreciate it. Yeah. I'm telling you. Um, so then, yeah. And I wrote, I wrote some, some, some movie scripts didn't get sold. And then I finally sold them. You know, I sold one, didn't get made. And to this day, I'm still trying to get that damn movie made. And then I wrote another one, which is about nine guys in a hole in the ground in World War One, called Death Watch. That's right. And, and we're going to yeah, get to Death Watch in a little bit. Now, your okay. resume is stacked with uh, tales of horror, such as Solomon Kane. Let's see. Ash versus versus uh, Evil Dead, Silent Hill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, some of your, how do your some most... more successful than others, I think we could admit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do your most recent projects compare to your earlier ones? Do you feel as uh, you've gained more experience, the quality of your films, your writing has gotten better and better? Uh, it goes two ways. Weirdly, naivety is fantastically useful in some ways, you know, not knowing what the limitations are and just writing any shit that comes into your head is great. The other thing, I was a huge horror nerd when I was younger. And I sort of, I guess as I got older, I found that actually I'm not as good at horror as I am at action. You know, so you sort of find your groove a little bit. It's like, I love horror, but I never really hit it out of the park in the way that I hoped. And I got, you know, I got, I made a Silent Hill movie and I got burnt on that, I didn't do a very good job. And I kind of found my groove again with Ash versus Evil Dead. Yes. And I'm sort of circling back to horror a little bit. But um, I, I really, really like to do things with kinetic energy. I get a lot of, because I like shooting so much. You know, I like shooting as well, shooting guns. But because I like that kinetic energy of, of a film set, and when you're doing an action sequence, I hate having second unit action directors. I like, I want to do it all myself. That's where I really found my enthusiasm. And you know, so I made a bunch of movies to start with, and then I kind of failed, and I went to direct to jail for a bit, and then I ended up doing TV, and TV sort of drove me down a different route. But I like, it's like if I was making Solomon Kane now, a movie that I'm very proud of, like I had so much longer to make that movie than I, than I would have now. It's like, you, everything's changed, right? I had 50 days to make Solomon Kane. Yeah. These days you get 25 or 30, right? So my skills as a filmmaker, my practical skills as a filmmaker have grown exponentially creatively i feel weirdly straightjacketed when i'm making you know piece of somebody else, some tv for somebody else for instance mm -hmm. like you just have to do what what you're painting between in their lines when i make my little movies so i've made two movies recently one called rogue which is that little action thing with megan fox mm -hmm. and i made another movie that came out a few months ago called endangered species now they're movies that i wrote produced and directed myself very small budget almost 100 percent creative control that's those moves are entirely me you know the failings are mine their successes are mine and i that's, i love it i'd rather get paid nothing and have the freedom so you kind of learn you can get burnt along the way and if you're very successful very early on right now if you've got if you come out your your first film's a huge hit and you just keep getting better and better budgets and more 
that's different. I was never that filmmaker. I was bumbling along. Like Death Watch was quite successful for what it was. My second movie was like, oh, okay, Solomon Kane. People liked, but didn't do well. Silent Hill killed my career dead. That's just sort of start all over again. It's just that's how it works. You know, listening yeah. to you talk, especially about the part about blowing shit up, it's it's like uh, I'm talking to the the Michael Bay of horror. <laughs> now how comfortable yeah. i mean are you a horror fan how comfortable do you feel in the horror genre you said you you're more of an action director but how do you feel comfortable comfort wise doing the horror genre doing it watching it i mean where, where, where are you placing me that i love i grew up entirely on horror that was a thing in the i mean this is why i'm a child of the video generation right because Evil Dead. That's why it's such an incredible because I literally cut school to get so I you know, I like I'd get the howling and American Wolf in London, some Cronenberg stuff, you know, the brood, a bunch of stuff. I'd go to the video store and a couple of my mates and I would just cut school for the day and just watch these movies. You know? We're the ones who pause scanners and the head explain you know, and I, and this is what I also did do when I got my first video camera, I'd rent video movies. And then I'd cover over the. Remember the tab that took out you took out of a video to stop it being recorded over. Yeah, the yeah. And then tab. you had to put tape back over I it would to put do a it. Piece of, I'd put the tape back over it, and then after the credits rolled, I then would record a review of the movie. Right. Wow. Like, so, so, so somewhere in the world, I mean, not anymore because I was long since been in landfill. There was a bunch of me going, "Well, everybody, what do we think of that movie?" <laughs> That's, and I do reviews. Oh my god, that's just very creative. Uh, so your directorial yeah, I, debut. I love horror. Uh, yeah, I mean horror. You know, uh, I hate it when I I hear people say this underappreciated genre. Horror is one of the top genres out there right now. Now, when it comes to awards, yeah, it's underappreciated. It doesn't get the attention it deserves when it comes to Oscars, mm -hmm. Emmys, and whatnot. But as far as uh, popularity, horror is very, very popular. Now more than ever, I think. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. T totally. I mean, it's never gone away. It ebbs and flows, and the style of horror changes. You know, and you go for, you know, I, was like, I also think as well, if you, if you really want to deconstruct it, you know, body horror and transformational horror are things, you know, really specifically a teenage thing because as your body is changing and your flesh is changing, you know, these, these stories speak to you. And then as you get a little bit older, horror about home invasion and things like that, they become more important to you and the threat to your family and your possessions. So we kind of evolve through horror. And the great thing is there's always new teenagers. There's always a new audience coming through and discovering these yep. movies. Like yeah. I, have, I have no objection whatsoever to remaking horror movies. Because like, there's always new people for it, and there's new styles and there's new approaches. It's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see what you know the new yeah. Texas Chainsaw is going to do, or the new Friday the Thirteenth. It's great. Bring it on. Yeah, it doesn't um, doesn't devalue the originals. No, it doesn't. And Halloween is a perfect example. How look at all the over the forty years, thirty years, whatever since seventy eight, all the different directions the Halloween franchise has taken. I mean, it's just one yeah. of those classic examples. Now, uh, you mentioned Solomon Kane and how mm. that was not received very well. But Solomon Kane has a very loyal cult following. 
Um, yeah. How do you? It was well. It was. No, hang on. I I want to I want to correct you. I think it was it was received pretty well. It was distributed really badly. You, you, and, and a lot of filmmakers blame distribution on their film's failures. Yeah. Like Silent Hill was, was received very poorly. Kane, I think, was weirdly, I won't say ahead of its time because that's taking too much credit, but it was a serious fantasy movie. A film, I, I mean, a fantasy genre is really one that I adore. Um, and after The Lord of the Rings was a huge hit, people were dabbling in fantasy a little bit. I mean, I grew up on Ladyhawk and Beastmaster and shit like that. And I hated those movies because I felt they were really camp and they didn't take fantasy seriously. Mm-hmm. And with Kane, and I was a Robert E. Howard fan, I was a Michael Moorcock fan, and those kinds of sort of pulpy horror, uh, fantasy, bordering horror sometimes. And I really wanted to make a movie that took that character seriously. And I think yeah, it does have a loyal following, and I love the fact that people still, still like the movie. There are failings with it. Of course, any filmmaker looks back on their work and sees where the mistakes are. But that I'm really proud of Solomon Kane. Oh yeah, yeah, and the reason, and, and I love that it's still love. And the only reason I brought it up that way is because you said uh, a couple of minutes ago that it did not do well, and that that's what kind of threw me off because it does have. Uh, it didn't, well, it didn't do financially well at all. Yeah, but doesn't mean that a film is not good. I mean, think of all the other films that have oh, come God, out. Oh God, no! I mean, I, I, I yeah. I mean, no, I mean, it's not. I wear the failure of Blade Runner as a you know that that's the movie because my favorite movie of all time. And Blade Runner was considered a disaster. And it's like, great, if that incredibly brilliant piece of filmmaking can be considered a disaster, poorly reviewed relatively, financially a total failure, and it's still one of the greatest films of all time. It's like, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, the, right? the list is on I this. Ma- I made Kane for me. Yeah. I mean, look at the list of movies that were just ripped apart by critics. The Thing, uh, Blade Runner, like you said. And now they are classic movies. Uh, I oh always God, tell I always tell movie ever made. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, screw the critics. You know, don't listen to the critics. History, time is going to put uh, a project, whether it's a, a a movie or a TV series. History and time is going to give it its proper place. Something that no critic or no viewer reviews will ever be able to do. And like Solomon Kane, oh, totally. Solomon Kane has a following that following is going to grow and it just goes to show you give something enough time let it build up a following that is what the true measure of success is oh totally i mean the, but the but, the, but the, the the unfortunate corollary of failure is you don't get any more work right so there's with a filmmaker you know like i make my living doing this and if i do a film which is perceived as a failure the people who give you money to make movies yeah stop giving you money to make movies and so and even no matter how damn good it is you know, don't get the audience which is why this horrible obsession with commercial immediate commercial success drives the film business in a, in a very damaging way i think i agree you know films are just agree. expensive you know? i agree uh history will That's judge it. a film in due time but as for the I filmmaker but in order for the filmmaker the success has to be right now. If it's not right now, well, right. you know, anyway, moving on. In 2006, Wilderness, okay. it's a story about oh, yes. young juvenile delinquents being sent to a small island uh, after one of the other prisoners' deaths where they have to fight for survival. Uh, Dario Poulton wrote the story. How did you get involved in Wilderness in that project? 
uh, that was a script. So after Death Watch, my first movie, um, you know, nobody tells you that the second movie is harder to make. That's a, that's a, like an industry secret. You make your first one, and then after that is like, okay. So I was I'd been teed up to make a bunch of movies, and none of them came out. None none of them worked out. And then Wilderness was went across my desk. Dario, I read Dario's script. Sort of, I thought this was a really interesting idea. I rewrote it in a kind of way which I liked. And we just wanted to shoot it. It was a fairly straightforward kind of process for that one. It was a company called the Cost Films in England. And, you know, it's like, what I wanted to make, again, I'm relatively serious minded. So I wanted to make something which is a kind of slasher picture, but dealt with different themes of loyalty and the fact that, you know, the kids kill each other more than the bad guy kills them. So it's all, they're all about the brutality of humanity in a way. Similar to Death Watch now, I think about it, you know, trap yeah. a bunch of people see what that pressure cooker environment will do to them. And if they're inherently slightly unhinged and you go like with, with, with Death Watch, it was soldiers in the trenches under enormous pressure. And Wilderness is a bunch of young offenders who are already at the edge of society. What happens if you take them off the leash, so to speak? Mm-hmm. And it's Sean Pertwee in that. And then Toby Kebbell in his second movie, he'd done Dead Man's Shoes for Shane Meadows. I thought Toby was amazing. So he came along. And uh, yeah, we got we got dirty and bloody and muddy and you know scrambled around the wilderness quite literally. When it comes to writing, do you enjoy writing stories like you just mentioned, uh, one way f- or shape or another, a civilization falls apart. You put a group of people in this uh, environment, and as a writer, do you like exploring all the different possibilities on how humans will react to their given situation? Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing of it is, is that if you're, if you're dabbling in any of these genres, there's, it gives you a beautiful canvas to work on. And yeah, ca- people in putting pressure on characters is so much fun because you want to see where they crack. And really, that's all any drama is. I mean, horror is sort of an extremist form of drama, but you only get progress through conflict. So let's see what's going to happen to them if we give them a curse, if we hurt them in some way, we take away something they love or give them a compelling reason to deny all the kind of laws of society because they want something those are fun places to be and if you want to be a little bit and i like to paint with a slightly broad brush let's say so we get to spill some blood yeah. crack a few skulls create a monster you know and i think it's you've got to as a, as a storyteller as a writer as a filmmaker you've got to do stuff you're interested in and i'm sort of interested in that i'm interested in transformational moments and a lot of it was because you know for horror i was exploring myself and how i felt about the world but also I kept, I'm not turning this into a kind of therapy session, but I really kept a, kept a lid on a lot of things for a long time. So I was never very honest as an artist. Mm-hmm. And I also used that word incredibly circumspectly about myself as a filmmaker, but I was never terribly honest. And it took me a long time to get to a place where I was like, this is how I really feel about things. And this is what I want to explore. And, you know, I don't mind failing if I'm failing on my own terms. All right. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. Do you feel now that you are comfortable in expressing yourself in front of the camera with other filmmakers, the actors and whatnot? Oh, my God, yeah, completely. I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. So now I think it's I'm still a mean bitch to work for sometimes. You know, I expect great things from people. I I want everybody to work as hard as I do. You know, so there's not, I'm not all fluffy unicorns and anybody who knows me will 
almost certainly agree with that. But I love what I do. And I want everybody to, to enjoy the process of making these films, even though it can be difficult and, and stressful. That's fine. We, you, you step into the business knowing that. For me now, it's like, I want to do shit that I care about, which is why the last two little movies I did have an environmental and conservation theme. Yeah. Because that's my great passion. That's what I think is important. So if I can do movies or tell stories which kind of hint at what I think is important, and I know that I lose an audience. I know that I, it's like, but it's okay if you don't, it's an economics gamble in a, in a way. Don't spend very much. Then you can be a little bit more provocative or a little bit more personal. The moment you start spending more, there's a lot more people having an opinion about what you do. And it's like, I don't really want their opinions. I mm -hmm. want to do what I do. Yeah. So pay me not much. I won't spend much money. Leave me alone. Yeah, exactly. It's your work and it's your vision. Uh, and I, I totally yeah. understand the money part. Because it doesn't put the amount of pressure on you if you did have like a big studio budget and you had everybody breathing down your neck saying, you know, this might be a little bit too controversial. You may want to take this out. And then before you know it, they're taking your creative work and it's something completely different from what you originally started out with. Oh, totally. I mean, I'm lucky that I've never been through the studio grinder the way that a lot of filmmakers have. I just never stepped out. But I was never successful enough to really be in the conversations. And when I was starting to get more successful, I was m more mature. And it's like, I don't want to chase that shit. I don't want to go through that pressure. Now, sometimes you'll see a filmmaker who can go through that system and still retain their voice and do something unique. And it's like, that's an amazing achievement to be able to play within that. Like James Gunn is like incredibly good at that. He'll, he has a unique voice and it sits perfectly in the world. I mean, even Zack Snyder, for, God bless him, is... You know, he's making stuff which is his. Yeah. So, you know, and but then you get to a, a level of success where you start to dictate the own your own terms. It's the middle ground. It's always the middle strata which is the worst place to be. Yeah. Middle management is not worth it. No, no. Now, endangered species, going back to that, sort of details the possible horror that can happen when humans venture into the wild. Uh, which some would consider mm -hmm. more horrifying than supernatural stories. Take me, for example. I'm a city boy. You put me in the woods, I'm going to shit myself. Uh, <laughs> now, why do you think these tragic tales continue to be as terrifying as they are, but also very enticing to audiences? Well, I mean, a little bit. I, I hate, you know, use, they use buzzwords like relatability, you know. So with endangered species... It's a family vacation that goes wrong. Fine, we've all been on vacations. We all have bitchy families. We've all got secrets mm -hmm. that we don't want to share with our loved ones. You know, so again, put somebody in a pressure cooker environment. Something goes wrong and all those secrets start to spill out, all the resentments, all the difficulties. Now, you have them being attacked by wild animals as well. That's great. So then, then you're folding into the kind of deep-seated atavistic fears that we have as humans. You know, we're, we're an evolved ape. We grew up in Africa. We grew up in places where things were going to eat us. So the, the fundamental horror of that, you know, look at Jaws. Jaws is still by far the best example of nature versus humans. Yeah. Because you can't see it. Being eaten is just the most horrific thing to happen to you. Whether you're being eaten alive by a small thing. Like in Death Watch, I had a, a character who had been shot in the spine, couldn't feel his legs. Turns out that he was being eaten from the legs upwards by rats that he didn't know were doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, 
So there's like rediscover, and the thing is, putting into that into the horror genre, you can then really expand that outwards as well. So it's loads of fun. With endangered species, it stays a little bit more grounded. And again, because I'm a naturalist at heart, I don't want the animals to be evil. They're not, they, they're not motivated. They're not hunting you because you're you. They're hunting you because you're flesh and you're food. The bad thing in endangered species is another human, a poacher. So in most of my stuff, it's always humans are ultimately the evil ones. Yeah. yeah. Evil, evil is motivated out of humanity. So that's kind of where I get interested. I've always wanted to make a werewolf movie. I like werewolves a lot as well. So I'm going to, I'll do a werewolf film one day. That's something that uh, only recently we started, started to see a few pop up. It's something that completely disappeared for a very, very long time. It's because uh, zombies. Everyone is doing uh, fucking zombies. They're everywhere. 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 I like zombie movies. They're nowhere near my favorite subgenre in horror. I can I enjoy zombies, the movie. Yeah, zombies are great. Yeah. There's just too many. I'm more interested into the the humans in the zombie story and how they're reacting to civilization falling apart. How are they reacting to the zombies? The zombies are just a backdrop to Yeah, but they almost the thing about that is what annoys me. They almost humans almost always act like assholes. Yeah. Right? Well they they end up killing each other. They're they're the biggest but threat. They, but they also don't behave in a yeah, but they don't behave in a way that humans would really behave in those situations. So what I always end up feeling, which drives me crazy, is you feel the screenwriter and the filmmaker driving characters into a certain scenario because they want it. It's like it's the classic don't go down the corridor on your own scenario. Yeah, we all do it. I mean, I'm as I'm as bad a sinner as anybody else. But there's a sometimes you go, you wouldn't do, you wouldn't dress like that if there were zombies around. If the if the if the danger was being bitten, you'd probably wear something more than a short sleeve shirt. <laughs> true. You know. Very true. Uh, and it don't drives me crazy. Same thing with um, the Quiet Place movies, which are technically incredibly well made. But you go. Really? Humanity's going to be destroyed by creatures that can't see and can only hear? Mm -hmm. And they discover that a shotgun kill. It's like, what are you telling you doing? Yeah. Drives yeah, me nuts. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's everyone's different style to the story that appeals to them, you know? Now, uh, you mentioned environmental. You, you're a big environmentalist. Uh, kudos to you. I'm, you know, the environment it's something that is not getting the attention that it fully deserves even you know mm -hmm. today especially today uh let's take example your movie rogue do you like to put um like terrifying stories involving the environment uh, as a way to as a way of like social commentary to tell people, yeah, there may not be monsters there, but the consequences of not respecting nature can be far more horrifying than what I'm showing you on the screen right now. Um, yes, I mean, I wouldn't have framed Rogue in that way. So Rogue came about because I was given the, I was asked by Lionsgate, would I executive produce some low budget movies with an eco, eco message? I said, no, I don't want to executive produce them. I want to make them. And they said, well, there's no, they're very small budget and you know, you won't get paid much. I'm like, I don't care. I'll have, if you just let me do what I'm going to do. So what I thought was nobody really wants to see a depressing movie about the death of the planet yeah. and the destruction of wildlife. You don't, people don't want to do it. They turn off, right? So you can't get an audience to watch. 
I thought, well, okay, what if I do, if I wrap an environmental movie into essentially an action movie with Megan Fox yeah. carrying a gun, then maybe I'll get some eyeballs. And then in the middle of that, I can talk about what was important to me in time, lion farming in Africa, where lions are being bred and killed for their bones, for medicine in Southeast Asia. Poaching, and they're being yeah. bred and, you know, and well, canned hunting. And then the cubs are being bred for photography and then they're allowed to grow up and then killed. And I just thought, well, this is a terrible thing. There are like 16,000 lions in farms in South Africa right now. I thought, well, great. I'll make a movie where you really enjoy watching the movie because it's, you know, it's action and it's got a bit of horror and it's got some cool stuff in it. And at the end, I'll tell you about the lion farming. So the, my trade with an audience is let me entertain you for 95 minutes and then I'll tell you the real thing I actually want to tell you. Endangered species is the same. 90 odd minutes of you know, family adventure and violence and things eating you. And at the end, it says, you know, the illegal wildlife trade is worth $24 billion and all these animals are being killed. Exactly. So it's, it's a way for me to, and the next movie I'm going to make will be about, it's going to be like a shark movie, but it's going to be about shark finning and it's going to be about what we're doing to the oceans, but it will look like a shark movie. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think for me, I've figured out a way of just sliding that message in without it being a message movie because it's nobody wants those. Yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to watch a movie where I'm just being told how shit everything is. Yeah. I mean, when you go to so, the movies or watch a movie at home, the whole point is to distract, you know, entertain. Yes. Uh, but yes. if you can do it, if you can take your message and wrap it around a good entertainment theme, then you've accomplished yeah. something right there. Yeah. If I can move the needle, Half of one percent. I feel like I've done something because, I, I, and again, not to get on a on a soapbox, but the only conversation worth having is the planet is dying. Yeah, and there's nothing else to talk about really because we we're now we're basically just on a sinking ship and figuring out how we're going to entertain ourselves. Exactly. Right now, there's a generation of people coming through. My generation has fucked it up. The generation before has fucked it up. At some point, somebody's got to say this is enough, and it can't be into politics. It's got to be something we we have to, as a society, make the change. Yeah. So little by little by little, I don't I don't have any more power than anybody else except as a filmmaker. I have a little bit of a voice. Exactly, and so use yeah. that voice. Use that voice to promote it and to, like you said, move that needle. Even if it's just a little bit, it'll make a difference. Yeah. It'll make a difference. Totally. I mean, look at a movie like Blood Diamond, right? Mm -hmm. It completely closed down an industry. Mm -hmm. it did that, that now you need yeah. leo dicaprio yeah. you need leo and leo speaks you know tries to speak out about these things but more and more and i meet actors who profess to be environmentalists i'm saying hey i'm trying to make some environmental movies and like yeah we are too it's like are you really doing that shit go do it then stop worrying about getting paid stop worrying about winning an oscar just go do it exactly and do it for the right reason and that's yeah. why this bugs me too. People in the entertainment industry, when they're expressing their their legitimate personal feelings on a subject, uh, we get labeled as you know leftists or way too liberal. And God, that just pisses the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, yeah. now, as a member of the LGBT community, uh, do you feel mm -hmm. there's a lack of proper respect uh to the trans transgender representation in media specifically in the horror genre and if so what can be done moving Ooh. forward to change that 
do I feel there's a lack of respect? Is there any respect in the sense that is is it ever is it ever touched on and talked about? I don't. You know what? It's weird for me because I don't. I, I am obviously a member of the LGBT community, but that's not a world that I spend a lot of time in. My I've never done anything which is sort of speaks to my transness. It's why I want to make a werewolf movie because it's a great way to talk about transformation mm-hmm. without talking about transformation. I don't want to, again, I don't want to preach to anybody about my life and how I feel yeah. and how I feel it should be treated. I mean, I just believe in equality, right? I just, I, I just think we should all be treated reasonably, whatever you are as a human being, exactly. and whatever political spectrum you come from. Um, there's not a lot of those conversations. I, don't, I tend not to watch serious dramas about trans stuff because it just depresses me because it's a lot of people go through very depressing lives. If I, again, it would, I want I'd want to come at it like, this is my experience and only my experience. I came out very late in life as well. So I like, I, I sort of did an end run. Like I, I was, you know, presented as a cis white English guy for most of my life, which is literally the most privileged class of human being in the world. Right. There's a, and nothing. I'm English. Right? So I'm English. I'm middle-class. I'm a dude. You know, like all of these things. Yeah. And then I came out as trans and I feel like I don't, I didn't really earn, I haven't really earned my place at all. <laughs> because it's like, got some success and by the way, this is me. You know, and the fascinating thing was that the industry as a trans person, you go like, all right, everybody wants you as a trans person. My friends who are, my, my, you know, my straight cis white guy friends are like, can't get arrested these days. There's this kind of weird balance. Yeah. It just keeps swinging backwards and forwards. And it's like, why do we always have to be on the extreme of something? Yeah. Yeah. So, but but in terms of uh, just to go back to the respect, you know, look at shows like Pose and mm-hmm. some of the more mainstream s- stories about transness and the, the experience of trying to transition, the difficulty and the oppressions. I mean, it, they're, they're horrible stories. For me, that is a great place to start talking. You know, going into the horror genre. So we're talking about going back to horror. I have two stories. Which will be, and I get sent trans scripts all the time to read. And like, do I want to do this? It's like, no, no, I don't want to do any of your stuff. I've got two of my own stories that I want to tell, which will be specifically through the horror lens and that horror genre. Mm-hmm. And it will the experience of almost rejecting yourself. I think one of the reasons I liked kind of Cronenberg-y type body horror and werewolf stuff when I was younger is that, that desperation to change from one thing to another. You know? And it's like, and it's such a subliminal thing, but it's like, yeah, I don't want to be what I am. I want to be something else. I didn't get that. I'm sorry. Sorry, that's Siri trying yeah, to talk. I, I, get, um, I get it all the time, too. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, seriously, it's okay. Shut up, Siri. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, and it's just trying to find a place to, to explore yourself. And now, I'm all a little. I've lived my life, right? Yeah. I got kids, they're growing up, they're all in the business. I'm like an I'm I'm a you know I'm an afterthought these days. Yeah, and you know, for us that lived through you know the '80s and the '90s and watching TV and movies at that time, and now the uh, the gay people, you know, and I don't mean no, mm-hmm. I'm taking the G out of the LGBTQ and I'm isolating them for a second. Uh, they okay. are getting. I'll be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> I'm saying it in the most respectful way because I, I, I want to make a point. <laughs> they are, uh, when it comes to representation to them in TV, film, whatnot, it's 
open. It's it, it's acceptable. It's being seen more and more of. Uh, I feel oh, when, totally. it, when it comes to more the transgender thing, when I, I don't see it as they've made that move yet. Uh, they've embraced no, it. No, but I also think it's one of those, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's one of those things where it's we trans people hold a wildly disproportionate amount of the headlines and the stories mm-hmm. compared to our actual numbers in the population. Now, and obviously more and more trans kids are coming out because they're more comfortable coming out because there's not the oppression and abuse that they used to be. There's still a wild, wildly large amount of oppression and abuse to trans people. But it's like I grew up in the 80s when the movement for, you know, for my gay friends coming out was the big challenge. Mm-hmm. That was the oppression. 40 years on from that, now it's trans people coming out and all the other the people on the spectrum and the, you know, the gender fluid and the whole notion of what is, I think it's based, the question is what it is to be human, yeah. right? Where you stand on the spectrum. I, I you know, I, I, I am at one place. My, I, my friends are in the military or at another place, super alpha dudes, which by the way is how I presented when I was trying to be a guy. It's like, yeah, okay, if I'm going to be a dude, I'll be an alpha dude. It's like, that's the way to do it, right? Yeah. You, you, you pick, and it's also easier to understand that. So you try, you try to live that life and it completely fails and falls apart on you. But it's only now, I, I, in a week, there was like a, the other week there was like a, tran, a trans awareness day. And a little bit of me was like, I would love there to be like a trans ignoring day to not have, not it always be just like, just everyone just leave, ignore us for a bit. Because I don't want another fucking headline about trans in the military or whatever it is or some horrible oppressive thing that's happened because right now, there's, I don't know, a political will to find minorities that you can shit on. Yeah. And it's sort of what it is. It's like whoever the weakest group to shit on. It's like, you look what's happening in Eastern Europe and in Poland. Now, there, are, there are politicians in Poland who are saying, we actively want to deny gay people and trans people any rights. You guys are the reason the world's shit. Mm-hmm. In Hungary, where I used to make so many of my, my projects, I used to go and shoot in Budapest. And I love the Hungarian people. I love Hungary. Their politicians are essentially outlawing being gay or trans all over again. And it's like, fuck, we were making progress just to be, just for equality. No, you know, I've shot in, in, yeah, I mean, I've shot in the Middle East, um, in serious Muslim country, country where I was fully respected and treated well. I shot my last movie in Kenya where it's still illegal to be gay. Mm. You know, and I've been all over the world and I've seen how people are treated. Generally speaking, I come in, even though I'm trans, I come in as a white person. I come in as a Western white person. I come in in charge. I'm bringing a project which is worth money, right? Yeah. So they can give me a break, right? Yeah. But I, you know, I've spoken to my, my friends from other ethnicities who are like, no, it ain't that easy. And so is there a story in there? Yeah, I mean, there'll be a horror. But to me, it's much more about my relationship with myself. Now, uh, would you say uh, your work as a photographer took you to more exotic places than opposed to when you became a filmmaker? No, I got to travel much more when I became a filmmaker. So I did the wildlife photography. I was still very young. So I was like 15, 16, 17, maybe when I was doing that stuff. Um, And I did a lot of work. I'm from England, obviously. So I did lots of work in the UK, a little bit of traveling then. And then when I was on TV, I used to be the wildlife person on a show called The Disney Club, which was like a Saturday morning 
children's show. They, they occasionally send me to places, which is fun. And I talk about, you know, lions or elephants or eagles or whatever. Um, then as a filmmaker, you realize I actually get to travel enormously because the producers and the studios are only chasing tax breaks yeah. across the world, wherever the funding is cheaper. So you go, I shot in New Zealand and South Africa and, and, and Kenya and Thailand. And I've been all over the planet for wherever it's cheapest, yeah. which is fucking brilliant. I mean, I've seen the world on, in the guys. Now, these days, I tend to pick projects based on countries I want to go to and you know, friends I've, I've, got, I've worked with. But like I did Ash vs. Evil Dead in New Zealand. It was just wonderful. That, so, was, that was shot in a, New a, Zealand? Yeah, we shot in New Zealand. Wow, wow. Because Rob Tappert, who produces mm -hmm. the Evil Dead movies, and Sam Raimi's partner, lives in New Zealand. He's married to Lucy Lawless, so they have a they have a studio down there, and that's where he made it. Wow. So, and Bruce had they made Xena down there, so Bruce had was down familiar with that being down there as well. So yeah, we all piled down to New Zealand for a few months. That is fantastic a, fun. That is awesome. Now, uh, Rogue, which came out in twenty twenty. Uh, you co-wrote and directed, and you worked on the script with your daughter. What was that like? Yeah, working with your daughter. Uh, it's really good. She's well. She's an amazingly talented writer. So with Izzy, her name is Isabel. So Izzy. So she writes very serious drama stuff. Normally, doesn't really like genres. She grew up with me, and she knows all the genre stuff. But like, has, has gone down her own route. Mm -hmm. And with Rogue, I was busy doing something else. So I'd written a story and I was like, ah, shit, I need to get this into a script. What can I do to get a script quickly? So I gave it to Izzy and said, hey, turn this into a script. Just do what you do. We call it a vomit draft. Yeah. So just vomit an idea out based on this. Let me see what you come up with. So she did that. I was like, all right, some interesting stuff in here. And then I rewrote her and then she argued with me. And then, you know, and then she's in the movie because we were making, we're such a low budget movie. It's like, you're cheap. Will you come and be in it as well? So, and I like to work with my family. So I, I brought her down to Africa. She did that. And then the next movie, Endangered Species, we did the same thing. And right. She co-wrote it with me. That's so cool. And now she's doing, yeah, it's lovely. It's, it's, it's really, also the thing is, you have somebody who can completely call you an asshole on the set and call you out for being badly behaved or a prima donna yeah. or whatever you are and just say, don't, don't be a dick. This is not you. You know, yeah. calm down or whatever. Or you're wrong. And the other thing is, you're wrong. Because a lot of people won't say that to a director. No, no, they wouldn't. Trust uh, like, me, I have three teams. They treat, with, I, they treat me with the respect I deserve, which is very little. Yeah, yeah, I have three teams. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, right, there you go, right. You're now, right. when it comes to writing, producing, directing, personally, which do you, it sounds to me, directing is what you enjoy the most. Is that accurate? As opposed to writing? Well, you know what? This, this is a stupid thing, right? So this is the nature of the contrarian personality that I am. Like when I'm writing, I really want to be directing. And when I'm directing, I just want the silence of, and contemplation of writing. But there is nowhere in the world I am happier than on a set. Like I don't really like pre-production. It needs to be done, obviously. I don't really like editing. Obviously, it needs to be done. I like to be on the floor. You know, so all the writing and the prep is just part of the process to get me to where you could because you rewrite it if you got the good act i came up with this thing new thing is evolving that's where you really you rediscover it yeah right or this thing's gone how do you fix it so it's problem solving dp says hey how about we do this like oh that's a good idea the special effects guy say yeah we, we can blow it up like this so how about we set fire to that it's like great let's do so it's all of those things you can do now a lot of that's done in prep 
it's you know we aren't really making shit up on the floor but you know what i mean it's like there's yeah. always these chances to do something different and i find the just the sheer exhilaration of that process wonderful you know i like to be behind the camera i love talking to the actors i like working with the script and, and that's where the you know the rubber hits the road mm-hmm. on the on the floor of the set i love it now you have uh come in to direct like single episodes of a series a good example is motherland fort salem you directed yeah. an episode i believe it was called bellwether season what's it like a wedding episode yeah <laughs> what's it like to come in on a show that's been running even for a little bit and just do one show and direct one show uh, is that difficult as a director how much research do you need to do? Let's say you never watched the show. Uh, what kind of prep do you do to get yourself in a familiar with that show's, that series uh, plot? Well, I mean, if, if you're doing an episode of a season, which is a first season, and they literally don't have a first episode for you to watch, you have no idea. Yeah. So, but this is the thing you have to, subs- not everybody does this, obviously, but for me, I have to park my rather inflated ego to one side for the duration of the process because I'm serving somebody else's vision. A director in television is not the senior figure that you are on a feature film set. Mm-hmm. You're very much more middle management or your seat, your senior management, shall we say. So the showrunner is the, the deity in the whole process. Yeah. You know, they are the person who is generally created it or developed it for TV. They how they hold the entirety of the, the story in their heads, they know what's going to happen. So your relationship with the showrunner is very, very important. So I've just come off doing two shows. I've just done, so Motherland Fort Salem is a really interesting example. I got that because I, um, Jess Sutton, who's one of the three lead young witches in that show, she was in Rogue for me. Okay. So she's one of the kidnapped girls in Rogue. And she'd also been in a movie I'd made called Inside Man, uh, Most Wanted, which is a, a sort of pseudo sequel to Inside Man, the Spike Lee movie. And Jess was great. And she told me that she, I'm doing the show called Motherland. I'm like, okay, like, good luck. And, and then I got a call saying, hey, Jess said that you might be interested. It's like, yeah, why not? It was a great premise. It was young adult stuff, which I hadn't really done. So I was interested in new, I'm always interested in new challenges in televisions, particularly because it can become like a treadmill. Mm-hmm. So, and I thought, that that show motherland is about young young war witches so they basically trained in a in a sort of military academy and i thought i was going in to do war sequences because that's generally what people bring me in for these days and i ended up doing a wedding episode there's a there's a knife fight at the end which is great but like the whole thing is a big wedding pagan wedding ceremony it's like and i got the script i didn't even know what i was going to be doing so you, you, you they give you the dates you know you're going to turn up They'll have sent you the pilot script to read. So you sort of like, oh, okay. And then maybe there's, a, maybe there's a cut of the first episode, which hasn't been locked, but it gives you a sense. And then you, I got there and about, I think three or four days before I arrived, it's like, this is your script. And I'm like, this is just a wedding. Yeah, <laughs> totally surprised. Why am I doing a wedding? Yeah. Totally surprised. And I could do one or two things. I could go, how fucking dare you give me a wedding? I'm supposed to, or you go, well, that's really interesting. Yeah. That'll be fun to do something different. So that's what I did. Oh, you know, challenge. and then a challenge, right? So I've just done an episode of Chris Pratt's new TV show called The Terminal List. Nice. Right, which come which will come out for Amazon. So that'll come out next year. And that's a military show. And it's like, so that hadn't there was nothing at all to see of that show when I came in to do that, because I was doing quite an early episode. 
and you go, all right, what do you want? So it's it, and then the, for that one, like the director of photography was very important because they were, they were establishing a visual house style. So stuff that I would in, naturally do, they're like, yeah, we're not really doing that kind of thing on this show. No, I could have gone either way. I could have said, well, this is what I do, and I'm the director. I probably could have got to do what I wanted to do. Or, and, I, and by the way, when I made a show called Strike Back, which I was an executive producer on as well as the, a director, so we'd have other directors would come in and they would do what they wanted. And I'd say, no, 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 we're not doing that. Don't do that, right? So I understand that sense of preserving the overall vibe of a show. So, you know, with, with terminalists, it's like, oh, great, I'm only going to use these lenses or I'm going to do it this style. And that, again, is another challenge. Yeah. Yep. Just did the season finale for um, a show called Reacher, which is based on the Jack Reacher novels. Again, totally different vibe to it. And that's great because that's another challenge. Yeah. I would go completely crazy if I didn't have the chance to do my own little movies in between. Yeah. Because you do have to park your ego and you do have to turn around and say, was that okay, everybody? Did we like that? Can I, you know, can we move on? That's awesome. And like, it drives me fucking crazy, but that's the thing to do and it's i you know i've met such good people i've had such a good time and it's the job every, every time you do it you're de developing your skills more yeah uh, always challenging yourself now we're almost out of time i can't believe how fast this hour flew by but i want to ask you this uh death watch is it true yeah. that you originally wanted it to be called the third part of man and then it got changed to death watch Oh my God, you, that was a blast from the past. The third part of man. Yes, I think there was a. How did you know? How and God's name did you know that? I have a good if research a, team. <laughs> if you put a gun to my head, I would not have remembered that. So right? that was what you wanted to call it. How did it get changed to Death Watch? Right. Okay. So it was, it was called the third part of man for like a brief moment in time. It was actually called No Man's Land. Okay. That was the title I went out with. It got changed to Death Watch, I think, by the studio. That's what I figured. Yeah, because there was there was um, the cent cent there's a, there's a couple of hours during Sentry Duty which are called the Death Watch, right? Because it's like a crappy time to do it. Yeah. And I think hey, they all liked it, and I, I really, 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 really hated the title. I thought it made it sound cheap and cheap and shitty. And the whole point of the, in, in World War One, there was no man's land. And that was a place where you didn't know where the hell you were. And the movie was about purgatory. And yeah, so Death Watch is what it's called. I mean, you know, you accept it. And the, Rogue was not originally my, my original title for Rogue. Sometimes a better title comes along. You know, I'm writing a thing called Unto Untitled Ocean Heist movie right now. <laughs> Sometimes you just don't know what the hell they're called. Well, the title will come along eventually. MJ, this has been, I can't believe how fast this hour has gone by. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming and sharing all of these wonderful experiences with us. Any final thoughts you want to share with our audience? Go back to movies. We need it. You yes. know, yes. If that's what that's what the, the film business needs. I mean, it's lovely seeing Candyman doing so well this weekend. I know, and I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it. I'm going to see it. I no, can't wait to see my, it. My, yeah. I'm 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 thrilled that there's an audience for it, and you know, we need to keep supporting movies because they're they're a dying art form. Yeah, yeah. Well, movie theaters are in trouble. Uh, movies, yeah. we're just overloaded with content right now on all these that, different. You know what? That's true. Movie theaters are in trouble, but the movie theater experience is is where we all started. We wanted to be around a communal campfire, particularly for horror. It's 
the best way of being told a scary story. Going to the movie theater is not just about watching a movie. It's an experience, okay, to be yeah, shared totally. with friends, family, and whatnot. Thank you so much. I want to thank our whole audience for tuning in tonight. MJ, you are brilliant, fascinating, talented. Can't wait to see more of your stuff. Thank you so much for coming on thank our you. show. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Till tomorrow, stay safe. On behalf of MJ and myself, stay walking. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much.